Crime Literature with Nancy Richards. Well, hi there and welcome. It is SFM Literature. Lovely to have you with us. And it's the show, as you know, about words and writing and books and reading and stories and ethics and screenwriting and a whole lot more on the show today. So hopefully you're going to stay with us right through until four o'clock. Let me introduce you to the team here in Cape Town. We have Lance Andrews in Johannesburg. We have Phineas in Tobar. Hi, Phineas. And we have Sulu Fellow Pelo. And we have all sorts of things lined up, so let me tell you what we've got on the show today. Starting off, as always, with our hero item. Our hero today, well, precariously, I suppose, is Jane Kutsia, I wish. (laughs) Through the lens of David Atwell, who has written a book called simply J.M. Kutsia and the Life of Writing. What an interesting journey the life has had. So we'll be looking forward to uh, hearing all about J.M. Kutsia through his writing. After that, in our book club, our member today is actually president of LIASA, that's the Library and Information Association of South Africa. She's Segametsi Molawa, and she's going to be talking both about the recent Librarians Day that happened on July the 10th, who knew, as well as the upcoming International Federation of Librarians Congress, which is coming up next month right here in Cape Town. Very exciting. Then in our text feature, the South African Book Fair that we spoke about a little bit last week, That's taking place between July the 31st and the 2nd of August. And we'll be talking both to the programme director, Batia Bricker, about the event, but also to Vern Harris, who is the Director of Research and Archive at Nelson Mandela Foundation, because they're going to be having a a particular uh, focus on Nelson Mandela's legacy. A man who was apparently said, I equip myself by reading literature. Nice title. Mm. Nice, Nice quote, that one. Then after the news at two in our book two, something for us to get our heads around, let me tell you, ethical quandaries in social research. Well, ethics, not necessarily something that's top of mind for people doing research, but you never know. So we'll look into a book uh, of that very name with co-author of the book called Fiona Ross. And then our bookshelf reader today, Nkozinati Mochibi, is going to be telling us what he's reading. And don't forget, if you want to tell me what you're reading, always interested to hear, you can pop us a mail. It's books at safm.co.za, books at safm.co.za. Otherwise, you can find us on Facebook. It's SAFM Literature. Then, story. And our story feature today, it's in two parts. We're going to be talking to two authors of... Christian bias books, let me say. We're going to be talking first to Doreen C. Mampani, who's written something like over 20 books uh, with sort of a, a Christian uh, influence. We'll be finding out about what drives her to keep writing so many books. Amazing output, that. And then we'll be talking to Jerry Mofoking Wa Maketa, who his book, well, you will certainly know him as an actor, director, counsellor, teacher, all sorts of things. But he's recently written a book called In Love and Intimate, which is all about marriage and how to keep it together. Then after the news at three, Roger Webster is going to be sharing a story of, uh, from days of old. In fact, he's going to be telling us all about ghosts. He's also going to be giving us a quick book review. So look forward to chatting to Roger, as always, at three. Then in our back page feature, we're going to be talking about screenwriting talking to a man himself who's a screenwriter. He does all, sort of th- does all sorts of things. He's Matthew Khalil. But he's talking specifically about screenwriting in Isikosa. So if that's something that you have been thinking about doing, do stay with us and make sure that you're listening carefully for all the details. And then to close, as always, it's time for the Sunday play. So if you want to get in touch with us, share in the conversation, 0891 That's our Joburg number, and they'll put you through. Otherwise, find us on Facebook, SAFM Literature, or books at safm.co.za. Just a quick footnote for you. How interesting to see that fragments of the Koran were found in the library of a British university and have been estimated through carbon dating to be at least 1,370 years old. Is that not truly amazing? It makes them the oldest surviving pieces of Islamic text in the world. And also, it's possible they could have been written by someone who even knew the Prophet Muhammad, which is uh, even more astonishing. And they are expected to be on display in October at that university in the UK. Absolutely extraordinary. Meanwhile, just very briefly, on a slightly more contemporary note, just looking through the Sunday Times today, I see that the top non-fiction seller for July, according to their list, is How Long Will South Africa Survive? But that's RW by R.W. Johnson. That's something to think about. And the top-selling fiction title, let me tell you, and I probably I imagine you will know exactly what this is, it's Grey, Fifty Shades of Grey, as told by Christian. So there you go. What, what can I say? But if you'd like to let us know what's your top book for July, or indeed for the whole year, let me know, books at safm.co.za, books at safm.co.za.
Remember that moment you wanted to give up when growing your business beyond borders stood still. You realized you didn't know how to conquer trading into uncertain territories, so you sought guidance from someone who knew the ins and outs of global trade. Someone who made sure your exports to Mozambique resulted in payment, or those imports from India arrived safely. Someone who offers easy access to world-class expertise and cutting-edge solutions. For some, expansion has plateaued, but not for you. Amazing things happen when you partner with the right people. Partner with NetBank and take your business to the next level. Email business at netbank.co.za for expert guidance on global trade. We're an authorized financial services provider. Make things happen. NetBank. So if you're sick and tired of your dry, cracked, red, itchy or flaky skin, then switch to Gloves in a Bottle, a unique shielding and dry skincare lotion. With more than 10 million bottles sold and internationally used and recommended by dermatologists, it's time you gave your skin the dry skin care and protection it deserves. Gloves in a Bottle, available at selected leading pharmacies countrywide. to SAFM Literature here on SAFM. Well, much has been said and written about Nobel Prize winning writer J.M. Kutzia, as you will only know too well. And it's been said by many people, critics, fans, reviewers, but it has to be said that some people are simply better equipped to pass comment or, or write about uh, arguably South Africa's most famous living writer than others. David Atwell is one such a man. He's head of the English Department at the University of York in the UK, uh, where he concentrates on international and post-colonial, Commonwealth and international and post-colonial literature. It's quite a mouthful. But he has been as close as you could possibly be to the work of J.M. Kutzia over the years. In 1992, he published a book called Doubling the Point, which was essays and interviews with a man. But 20 years later, he's gone back in again. He's gone back into the vaults of Kutzia's material to produce J.M. Kutzia and The Life of Writing, which is a different insight altogether. And I can only take my hat off to you, David Atwell, um, for, for diving in all over again in, into a pool that has been so full of words and discussion. Um, how come? First of all, welcome. Thank uh, you. Welcome back to South Africa. I've just on passant, I think we're just here briefly. Thank you very much, Nancy. Mm. I'm very happy to be here. Mm. So, why James Kutzia all over again? Well, the crucial thing was the um, availability of his manuscripts and notebooks. Um, the University of Texas at Austin acquired them in uh, 2011, and um, I was—I just found the whole idea irresistible of, as you say, diving into that archive. Um, and this is really the first time that we've been able to trace the, the genesis and the development of each of these extraordinary national treasures that are the novels of Jane Kutzia. How strange it must be for him to have your manuscripts and notebooks bought up by somebody. It's yes. It's kind of macabre, yes. isn't it? Yes, it's way. very interesting because he is, he is a writer who is known to, be, to guard his privacy. Yes. But in fact, the, uh, the archive is incredibly full. Uh, full of family memorabilia, as well as all of his notebooks. Um, there is some personal material that is restricted. Until after uh, he died. That's correct. Mm. But the material that is available is both voluminous, 155 boxes of research materials, manuscripts, his own research papers, uh, and notebooks, which are especially uh, revealing. Mm. So it's, it's a wonderful opportunity for Kutsia readers to find out how these how this extraordinary oeuvre yeah, comes about. It's a real behind the scenes, isn't yes. it? And a lesson, I suppose, for other writers who might consider themselves to be, to be of substance. Yes. To maybe keep all their stuff. Possibly, yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, I'm sure that that is an issue for writers. Mm. There, there will come a point when they have to decide what they're going to do with their material. Um, but I think the lesson for other writers is uh, a lesson about his authorship because he turns out to be quite different from the kind of author that we've assumed. He's got a reputation for being remote and rather severe um, and rather detached and so forth, partly because he guards his privacy so well, but actually when you read the papers, it emerges that uh, there are indeed all kinds of vulnerabilities associated with the process of authorship and the, pa the papers make that completely clear. So we see, we see a human being at work uh, struggling with enormous self-consciousness, but also incredible discipline um, and just the right kind of aesthetic judgment to bring these works 
to, 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 you know, allow them to flower, as mm. it were. And he's got this enormous faith in the creative process. So, so he writes and writes and writes until he can see something emerging, and then he trusts his instincts and allows that to develop. So yeah. one can watch that process developing with all of its uncertainties yeah. and vulnerabilities. Sure. It's wonderful. So he writes and writes and writes and pears down as, as he right. writes and polishes yeah. and pears down. Yeah, endlessly. And hmm. I suppose, I, I'm trying to think of an analogy, but I suppose it's a bit like improvisation versus a finished play. You know, yes. where, where an improvisation piece will just come out as, it, as, you, as you feel it from a sort of visceral yes. space as opposed to being polished and then yes. something that you can... The, the analogy would be that he improvises and improvises and then mm-hmm. goes back to his records and, you know, reruns the video or whatever it was, <laughs> um, revisits his diary and then, and then works out what's durable and then elaborates that so that there is, there is a process of refinement that goes mm. on. I suppose the other lesson is, but then this would be pre-computer in, in some instances, um, is to make sure that all your notes are legible. <laughs> yes, be that's no most fortunate. Yeah, he's is, a, he's was a, he a great sort of, um, no, is he very meticulous? He was keeping? absolutely meticulous, mm. and yes. uh, fortunately his writing is legible, but he dates every entry in his manuscripts. And also in his notebooks. So if you follow the notebooks and the manuscripts, you can see from day to day how how a particular novel evolved, wow. which makes which makes a job like mine a, a lot easier. Yes, yes. What a, what a gift! <laughs> what a gift! <laughs> uh, in fact, I think that your your job is done with this particular book. Mm. But I mean, it, it goes on because you. I think you've given a, a lecture at the University of Cape Town. Yes. And are going to give another one tomorrow. Yes, night. I'm giving a few lectures in the mm. uh, in UCT's um, extension lecture program, the Centre for Open Learning. Um, puts on an extension lecture program throughout the year, in fact. So I gave a, a lecture last week on, um, on Waiting for the Barbarians and how that novel developed. And I'm going to be speaking about a, a rather difficult novel called The Master of Petersburg um, tomorrow night, Monday. Hmm. So the, and, and that's open to the public? Yes, it if is. anybody would like yes, to go get it off at university. UCT, the Kramer Building. There you yes. go. Master of Petersburg, as you refer to it, as a, as a difficult piece, and my rejoinder was, aren't they all? <laughs> but, I, but I'm not sure, not necessarily mm. the case. But your book, um, despite the difficulties that people may have around Deum Kitsios, your book is very accessible, because you. what you've done right at the beginning, which I find enormously helpful, is have a whole chronology. Yes. You've got a timeline, you know. So John Maxwell Kitsio was born 9th of February, Cape Town, father Zacharias is an attorney, mother Vera, a school teacher. Yes. And so it goes on, which is... John Really useful mm. because the nature of your book is looking at what his life was like mm. at the time of writing each and every piece. Absolutely. John Cossier once remarked that um, what biographers do most of the time is write about what writers are doing when they're not writing. So I was concerned to get uh, as close as I could to the process of authorship. Um, so this is not a biography in a conventional mm. sense. It's not, a, bio- it's not an, a story of the man. It's an account of his work. Uh, you can't ignore biography in order to do that kind of work, but, um, but I'm interested in, in the process of invention, the creativity that lies in the authorship, and the relationship between that creativity and the life. So what I decided to do was put a chronology at the beginning of the book so that there was a spine of central core facts about him, if you like, and then readers can refer back to that chronology if they need to know how things fit in. But the emphasis then is on the creative process rather than the life itself. And then there's a personal piece by yourself which sort of explains how come you're doing this and Mm. why. Mm. And one of the questions really is that I think in 1992 it was, I'm just trying to find, yes, that you and he worked together on something called Doubling the Point, essays and interviews. Uh, In fact, 1988 you started working. We started then, yes. What was the objective with that one? Well, John Cotier is a, is a, a scholar and a critic as much as he's a novelist. Um, so a publisher suggested that there would be scope for a book that collected some of his uncollected uh, scholarly writings, but that somebody does a series of interviews with him to explore the relationship between his, his critical work, his non-fictional work, and his fiction. And that exploration was going to take the form of an intellectual biography or an intellectual autobiography. But um, John Cossier didn't want to do this uh, on his own. He wanted to do it through dialogue. Um, and, and I just happened to be the right person in the right place at the right time. So he invited me to collaborate on that project. Oh, that must have really been quite 
quite something. Well, it was extraordinary. It was really extraordinary. In fact, I had uh, he had been my MA thesis supervisor at UCT. And I went to the University of Texas to do a PhD, and I was going to write on uh, on another Cape Tonian, Alex Laguma. Um, but I decided to switch to John Coutier's work. By that time, he had six novels out, and my supervisor said, well, here's a subject you should actually... You're so passionate about this, you should actually be writing about it. Mm. So, uh, so I turned on my former supervisor to some extent. I think, I think John was slightly surprised when that happened. Um, but as students do, I wrote to him with a series of questions, and I said, well, can you help me with this project that I'm doing on your work and of course he quite rightly said no (laughs) (laughs) but then we were in conversation and and a few weeks later he said to me well I'm doing this other thing I've been asked to do this book for a Harvard University Press a collection of non-fiction would you like to be the person then who does the interviews and links the uh, the fiction of the non-fiction so naturally I said said yes yes (laughs) Yes, what what an honor it was wonderful yes Yes. and what an entree into the into his mind, yes, I suppose. So th- there's a very strong distinction then between that book and this book, mm. which is, and I think that you were invited to write a, a biography. I was by John Coutier's Dutch publisher, as it happens. You know, he published uh, a very interesting um, memoir, uh, fictionalized autobiography, the third of a trilogy called Summertime, and in that book he quite quite markedly um, rewrites his own, his own autobiography, uh, re- rewrites the facts of his life, puts them in a different order, and all sorts of things go on that aren't actually strictly true. Yeah. So um, his Dutch publisher, Eva Kosse, in uh, Amsterdam, asked me if I would write a biography that she could publish alongside Summertime so that readers could get both fact and the fiction. Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, and an intriguing idea and commission, but, but I was not sure that I was a biographer at all, actually, because I'm trained as a literary critic, and believe me, they are quite different disciplines. So I wasn't sure. Eva and I kept in conversation. Uh, then it emerged that John Connemer was writing a biography, and uh, we felt strongly that there shouldn't be two competing books. Mm-hmm. So I got in touch with John Connemer, and we got on very well. And uh, we corresponded in the last uh, year or two in which he was writing his, his biography of Kutsia. And also I wanted to see what scope there was once John Kahnemeyer's book had come out yeah. for something different. And because, because John Kahnemeyer wrote a biography essentially about the man, I thought because the papers were now available, we needed another kind of book, a complementary book, if you like, which is much more about the work. And indeed I draw on John Kahnemeyer's research quite a bit in order to, uh, to establish some biographical background for the analysis that I do of the genesis and development mm-hmm. of the fiction. And your book, if, if I'm setting this right, is, is the, the life of the man as it's impacted on his writing, yes. or vice versa. Yes. Uh, and vice versa. Yeah, the integration of the two. Yes. Give us an example. I mean, let's, let's start with some of his early stuff and, and what was right. going on in his life that impacted or mm. that birthed. The, the novel. Well, one of the one of the lovely examples that I go back to, uh, and I could speak about almost any of these novels. Mm. Um, I should just mention as part of the background here, he turns out to be a much more autobiographical writer than we ever would have imagined. Um, but of course, like like his great modernist uh, forebears, what he does is he begins with the personal and then writes himself out of the story. So that is the basic pattern, and you could trace something like that with most of the fictions. But the, the text that I find so extraordinary in illustrating how this works is the novel Age of Iron, which was published in 1990. It's a story of uh, um, an elderly, retired professor of classics who is writing a long letter to a daughter in, who is in America and won't come back to South Africa until the current rulers are swinging from the lampposts, she says. Um, but this mother is laying out her life for her daughter, in an act of self-explanation, self-exculpation to some extent, um, and so on. So, how did this novel come about? Well, John Coetzee's mother died. About a year later, he starts writing to her. He writes quite personalized, long letters about the relationship, about her, about her times, and so on and so forth. It is clear that he's working towards a fiction of some kind, gradually begins to fictionalize the details. So it, the, the, the writer turns out to be an artist rather than a writer who gives, um, who gives classes in sculpture and photography. 
Um, he's writing to a sister at one stage about their mother who's still alive, but clearly uh, very ill, and so on and so forth. Um, he's living in his mother's house in Rondebosch. I mean, this is, this is as the text gradually becomes fictionalized. Um, but at a certain point, he switches the whole perspective around, and instead of writing from the position of the son about the mother, and it's quite clear in these early drafts that John Kutzer is deeply influenced in this process of exploration by his relationship with his mother. But he flips the perspective around at a certain point, and the fictionalization develops, so he starts writing from the point of view of a mother writing to a child mm. who's no longer in the country. And at that point, he can invest the voice of this mother with his own position. So the mother becomes a retired professor of classics rather than Vera Kutzir. And once she assumes that role, then he can bring in all of his own learning. So then she becomes a devotee of Virgil, uh, somebody who's read Dante, and the classicism begins to emerge, and the relationship between that cultural heritage and the crisis that South Africa is going through in the 1980s becomes a focus for that book. Uh, so it, it becomes terribly poignant, but it's, of course, detached at this point from John Kutzi's own life, but it began very personally, and I think that's really important because no, these novels are, are deeply affecting, they are compulsive reads, and the fact that they are rooted in autobiography helps to explain that. And such a story there is behind each and every novel, which, Correct. Is, which is extraordinary. Yes. Uh, we sadly don't have time to go through them all, but the, the, another one was uh, Suburban Bandit. Yes. Um, which one of the provocations that lay behind Life and Times of Michael Kay was household burglary, a persistent problem of life in suburban Cape Town. And he spent most of uh, 1979 in the States, That's came right. back... Found all this burglary. Found his house had been burgled, rather badly vandalized. Uh, felt that sense of outrage that people do under those circumstances, and then he clearly thought, "Well, can I make a novel out of this outrage? You know, can I use this feeling productively?" <laughs> and uh, and so he set about writing a novel, and again about an intellectual who is um, who's writing a, a verse translation of a of a German text. Um, called Michael Kohlhaas, written in the 18th century um, by Heinrich von Kleist. And uh, that's where the name Michael K. comes from, by the way. It's from Michael Kohlhaas rather than from Kafka, as people mm. tend to think, although Kafka was an influence. Um, so the, the story of Michael Kohlhaas becomes the basis for a novel that John Kutzer is writing. And through a long and tortuous process, Michael Kohlhaas turns into, and the intellectual writing this book, turn into Michael Kay, who's a very different kind of figure. So I call this chapter Suburban Bandit as a way of trying to indicate where the, where the texts start mm -hmm. and, then, and, and, and the fact that, of course, it ended up in a very different place. Hmm. Uh, each and every novel really could have a book on its own. It could. Right. It I'm, could. I'm longing to ask you about The Master of Petersburg, yes. which, as you say, is the most difficult. Can you give it to us in a very brief period? Very briefly, it's, uh, it's a novel which tells the story of a, um, of a repressed episode in Dostoevsky's novel, The Possessed. Um, and John Kutzi had lost a son, uh, shortly before, um, a few years before he began writing this text, he imagines Dostoevsky writing a novel in response to an episode of very deep grief. And so he puts his own difficulties into the vessel, if you like, of Dostoevsky's creativity and writes a novel in which a departed son is turning into a character in a work of fiction. So he puts his own situation into an imaginary Dostoevsky situation and writes a novel based on that structure. Yeah. And so they go on, Disgrace and all the other yes. things that followed. Just, just lastly, it's um, third phase, I think there's a third, third stage. Third stage, so, yes. Um, that's presumably what he's at now mm. and, and still busy writing. Yes. Um, just, just describe the three stages very briefly. Well, this is a this is a, a phrase that he himself uses. Mm. He talks about three stages in the in the career of a writer. This is in his letters to the Brooklyn-based novelist uh, Paul Auster. And uh, the th the three stages are that in the first stage of your of your career, you are confronted with a big question which you try to answer. In the second stage of your career, you you write fiction which which tries to resolve the questions that that come up as a result of that single great challenge that you need to face. 
But then in the third stage, you look back and you become more reflective and you, and you think about the creative process itself. And your writing, writing becomes more pared down, um, focusing on essentials, uh, carving away, paring away at all the detritus, if you like, so that, so that the, the, the core truth can come out. And he talks about Dostoevsky as being a mm-hmm. figure who went through this kind of process. So he, he, he says to Paul Auster, that he feels that he's in that third stage himself. So I've used this as a way of talking about the writing that he has been doing in Australia since mm. he moved there in 2002, which is predominantly about the creative process itself. Yeah, right. Not, not so much about Australia. Rather not than so much at this stage. That is an interesting question. That's an interesting question. He, hasn't, he hasn't yet written the, 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 the Australian novel that yes. we're all waiting yes. for him to write, although he's made various attempts at doing so. Yet is the word. Isn't yet. It? yet. <laughs> and it, it seems like, you know, given that you have all this information at your fingertips, it seems like your immersion into J.M. Kutzia has been total. Um, mm. Are you done now, or are you, are you part of the yet? Well, I've, I've said a couple of times that I'm done. Um, after I wrote, uh, after doubling a point, I wrote, I wrote a book in 93 on his work called J.M. Kutsia and the Politics of Writing. And I decided then that I wouldn't write on him for at least a period of five years. Well, I did some other things. And I did some other things, but I kept coming back to him because his career has been so protean and dynamic. And, and then he won the Nobel Prize, after all. So his career has, has, has kept me... Uh, focused for a long time because uh, it's unstoppable really he's like an express train that uh, that one can't get off (laughs) bullet train (laughs) absolutely fascinating amazing david outwell thank you very much very best of luck with with all that lies ahead whether or not it includes jm kutzia but it's been really interesting it's been a pleasure thank Thank you Jim Kutzia and the Life of Writing is the title of the book. It's by David Atwell and it's published by Jakarna. And don't forget, if you'd like to hear more and you find yourself in Cape Town, get yourself to the Kramer Building tomorrow night at 6 o'clock. He's going to be talking about the Master of Petersburg, amongst other things, I imagine. So there we go. Thank you very much, David Atwell. Enjoy the rest of your stay here in Cape Town. Thank you very much. You're listening to SAFM Literature. Do stay with us because in a minute we're going to be talking about libraries, international libraries, so stay tuned. Right now you're listening to SAFM Literature. Well, it's book club time and our member today is a woman for whom books and all that in them is, is absolutely key to her career. She's Segametsi Molawa. She's president of LIASA, which is the Library and Information Association of South Africa. And she's also co-chairperson of IFLA. Uh, she's on the 20, IFLA 2015 on the National Committee. Well, IFLA stands for the International Federation of Library Associations and Institutions, and they are indeed going to be having their 81st uh, Congress, which is coming up in Cape Town in August. Uh, so very pleased to have her on the line, tell us all about it, and also the fact that just recently, July the 10th, it was actually National Librarians Day. So Gamatsi, lovely to have you with us. Thank you very much for your time. Hello, hello. Good afternoon, Nancy. Thank you very much. And good afternoon to the listeners. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. I think it's a great honour for Cape Town to be hosting the uh, the 81st World Library um, and Information Congress, which is which is huge. Um, but before we get on to that, just tell us a little bit about National Librarians Day, which was July the 10th. What was the purpose of that? Is it, is it just to sort of throw a spotlight on librarians and what they do? Uh, in 1997, on the 10th of July, the first democratic uh, library association was launched, and South Africans were very happy to have that. And why this association? The association is there for the interest of libraries and librarians, but the major thing is that uh, we see librarianship as a dynamic profession, and as a key contributor to the development of the citizens and their communities. And now as we are looking at uh, building an informed nation, a knowledgeable and educated knowledge, uh, communities uh, through equitable access to information, uh, we are so happy to see the profession gaining recognition more and more. Because for, 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 for quite a long time, librarianship was not receiving the recognition it deserved. And the things are changing now. 
So we see librarianship again bringing to life the fundamental rights of citizens as enshrined in the Constitution of South Africa and notably the right of access to information. And then the growth and sustainability of the South African democracy is reliant on citizens who are able to make well-informed decisions about all aspects of their lives, be it economy, be it health, and even socially. You know, as we we are talking about the social cohesion, so when we see uh, librarians being in the center of uh, leading the nation and ensuring that people use the information that they get quite well and that it improves their lives. Initially, we used to say uh, librarians are custodians of uh, the collection, but today they are facilitating access to information, knowledge, and learning resources, not only to give people books. We want to make sure that they get the information, and we want to see better people who take better decisions. Mm-hmm. So on the day, on the 10th of July, we were celebrating. Now this association is 18 years old. So all the time we celebrate libraries, the development of libraries. Last year we were looking at the, 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 the 20, as that our country was looking at the 20th celebration of the de- democracy of our country. We were also celebrating the development of libraries in this country for the, the, the period of 20 years in the democracy. But now we said, but we are looking at libraries and all this information resources, but who is driving this? Yeah. Then we started looking at the librarians and started celebrating the people behind uh, the information that we are providing. Yeah. And so this is so critical that we acknowledge that these people are professionals, but there have been debates, a lot of debates about you know, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Mm. It's wonderful to hear your optimism, and I love the celebration. And you know, suddenly they're being recognised, and they're these wonderful, knowledgeable people. But I'm just, you know, from everything that we hear, that we don't have enough libraries, we don't have enough librarians. They're embattled. They're being burnt down. We, you know, what we hear is a different story. Do we have enough librarians? Are people moving into it as a profession sufficiently? Yes, so people are moving in other areas if they are not getting employed. Uh, we do have librarians. I wish I had statistics to provide to say how many librarians are unemployed out there. Mm. But we are busy working on that because we want to inform the decision makers that they should employ the people rightfully. As our profession uh, was not uh, having standards and we were having other people who are not librarians appointed as librarians, but we are also excited now that uh, our association, the LIASA, it's a professional body now. It's recognized by SACWA as a professional body. Mm-hmm. So we know that people will no longer uh, practice in the profession without being professional. Yeah. We mm-hmm. acknowledge that uh, we are having so many people who have been practicing. All those uh, nitty-gritty issues will be taken care of. But the major issue is that uh, librarians should be employed in yeah. the rightful position. I, I mean, the idea of, the an, are, the idea of acknowledge an as, as professional. Yeah. I was yes. going to say that the idea of an unemployed librarian seems like an absolute travesty. You know, get them, get them a job yeah. immediately. But I'm sure that the pr- whole profile of libraries is going to be much uh, raised with the, with the IFLA Conference Congress that's coming up in August here in Cape Town. Very exciting. First time in, first time in South Africa? First time in Africa? Maybe not? Yes. Uh, it's, the, it's the second time in South Africa. Okay. We are having, we, we had in 2007 the first uh, IFLA conference in South Africa, but in which was the second in Africa. So this is the second one. Okay. And it is in Cape Town. Uh, when you had me and the IFLA president, 
hope you remember that on the yeah. 15th of March when we were in your talk show, mm. when you hosted us, I was with Ms. Sinika Sipina, the president of uh, ISLA. Uh, she's from Finland. So we were discussing the issue of ISLA coming to the country. It's so interesting that it was four months away. Now we are talking three weeks. Yeah. Even today as yeah. we are talking, then only two Sundays left. We will be, have, the next Sunday, we will be uh, having our big opening session. Which is very and exciting because I think we've got something like between three and 4,000 librarians coming from all over the world. We are on 3,000. 3,000. Uh, the Deputy President, Cyril Ramaphosa, will be welcoming all the people who are coming to the conference. And we have a series of uh, interesting papers lined up, plenary sessions, but there, there will be uh, a highlight session with Seneca Sipina, who is the president of IFLA, Donna Schneider, who is the president-elect, and Jennifer Nicholson, who is the IFLA uh, secretary-general. I wish you can manage to be there to capture that because we will be discussing the highlights of this international conference, the achievements of this conference, and even the strategic direction that it is taking. I think the theme this time is dynamic libraries, access development, and transformation, which is self-explanatory. What is hoped to come out of the, because uh, I think it's from the 15th to the 21st, if I'm not mistaken, what do you hope, what is hoped that will come out of the Congress? Um, access to information is quite a big challenge, not only for South Africa, for Africa as a whole. Uh, the Department of Arts and Culture, through the Deputy Minister, is arranging a big symposium uh, before we start on the 14th. There will be this uh, symposium where the, the ministers, from other countries of Africa are coming down to South Africa and there will be uh, open discussions on how to position libraries in the political agenda. Mm. So that will help a lot because South Africa has been so fortunate that uh, the sector has found position or is well positioned within the political agenda of this country that libraries are getting the support that is why we are even able to host this IFLA conference. If the government didn't promise or didn't have a buy-in and give the amount of 7.5 million to just to start securing other logistical arrangements before we, we had this. So it, it, it is something that is promising that out of this conference we will, we will be seeing and Africa, not only South Africa, Africa that is improving with access to information, libraries receiving the attention of all the political uh, figures and all the sectors in the library also uh, receiving attention, the focus attention, because in South Africa when we look at the National Development Plan, it now positions all the subsectors of the libraries and information mm -hmm. services to know what their role is. Yeah. So well, uh, to access yes. information development and to transform. And yeah. now that we have just uh, that our library and information services transformation charter has was accepted by the then Minister of Arts and Culture in 2014 April. So implementation will be fast-tracked because all the relevant stakeholders are focusing on it now. Yeah. So we, well, we are we're getting... getting yes, we're, go we're going to have to leave it at that, I'm afraid, but it certainly it sounds like there'll be plenty of brain power looking at uh, the whole issue of dynamic libraries, access, development and transformation. And I think if anybody would like to know more, um, probably best to visit the website, which would be ifla.org. Would that be right? Yeah. To, 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 uh, to access who, IFLA or LIASA, LIASA. Yeah, is. Or www.liasa.org.za. Yeah. Okay. 
liasa.org.za. Um, Sigametsi, very yeah. best of luck and hope to see you down here in Cape Town. And uh, I think you're really going to have, well, lots of fun, I think, <laughs> over and above. Uh, we are going to have yeah. lots of fun. Super. We, we, we wish all the Cape Townians and other South Africans can help us to host our international guests very well in our country. Lovely. 3,000-odd librarians from all over the world. Segametsi Molawa, thank you so much. Very best of luck with the 81st World Library Information Congress the, uh, coming up on uh, August the 15th to the 21st right here in Cape Town, International Federation of Library Associations. If you want to know more, do check the LIASA site, which is liasa, L-I-A-S-A, dot org, dot z-a, liasa, dot org, dot z-a. Stay tuned in a minute, the South African Book Fair. In our text feature, you might remember that we spoke last week about the South African Book Fair. It's coming up on July the 31st to August the 2nd. We talked about some of the events on the show. We spoke to Lauren Biokas about her Wonder Woman comic. We also spoke to Eleanor Sasulu talking about the importance of publishing children's literature in mother tongues. But what else has the fair got on the menu? Well, we do have on the line a program director for the South African Book Fair. She's Batya Bricker. But also in our Johannesburg studio, we have the uh, program, we have the director of uh, research and archive at the Nelson Mandela Foundation, because I think there's going to be quite a strong focus on uh, the Madiba legacy. There's going to be a panel discussion, which sounds very exciting. And he's Vern Harris in our Johannesburg studio. So, hi there, Batya. Are you with us? Hi, good afternoon to your listeners. Good. Thanks very much. And Vern, you're in our Joburg studio. I'm here. Super. But I'm going to start with you for an overview. I've, it sounds like there's all sorts of things coming up at the book fair. Are you particularly thrilled with this year's lineup? Well, it's, it's been quite a ride, but yes, we are really thrilled with what we have on offer. There are over 100 events, over 100 authors over the three days, so it's jam-packed. And there are writers and thinkers and poets and publishers and playwrights all sharing their experience and knowledge and talents. And the, the events are really as varied as the books and the authors themselves. So, yes, we do have the serious discussions, and Vern will tell you more about the Nelson Mandela Foundation event. But there are also um, Mellon Guardian Litfest events on uh, race, on politics, on economics. And then some fun stuff. We've got books, boys, and beers with Kaya Dlanga and Pete Goffwood, which I'm particularly looking forward to. Um, and a panel on journeys and the lessons and inspiration to be learned along the way, you know, with somebody like David Greer, who ran the length and breadth of India for Sipla. Um, and he's produced the most magnificent book from his trip, and this is about the lessons learned along the way. So we've got a mix of events. We've also got a mix of workshops, um, poetry workshops with some, someone like Samuela Dowling, um, a script writing workshop with Ronnie Aptiaka, and then we've got events that we've taken out of the formal event setting, like a walking tour around Johannesburg. We're doing a, a name-changing walking tour where you can check out the, the different places and streets and historic buildings that have changed their name and why they have changed their names and if it's important or not. Um, so it's about books, it's about words, but it's also on your feet. Yeah. And the, la- the last thing for me is the children's program, which is always a highlight. Um, and because it's Alice's 150th anniversary, Alice in Wonderland, that is, we are launching the translation of Alice in Wonderland into Isuzulu with a Mad Hatter Tea Party. Um, mad hat, mandatory, obviously. Mm. Um, and we have Tina Besta, your Cape Town Tina Besta's Queen of Tarts handing out the prizes. We've got a petting zoo, we've got balloonists, we've got all kinds of Alice-inspired eats. Um, so I think it will be the grand finale to what is going to be an amazing three days. Well, I'm wondering if the, that translation of Alice into Isuzulu, if the Mad Hatter will be wearing a makarapa. <laughs> I, I just have to ask you, Batshu. I mean, you won't have been ignorant of, the, of all the debate and issues that went on around the French Book Fair, etc., uh, etc. Et you know, whether or not it was fully inclusive, whether or not we should be revisiting book fairs of all descriptions. Has that had an impact on your decisions about what you would and wouldn't include in the book fair? Oh, undoubtedly. Mm. Um, I think that it has influenced both the types of events we've planned. Um, the, the pro- author profiles, 
Um, but it also had a, a big influence on where we were going to host the book fair. And that's why the book fair is at Turbine Hall in Newtown, which is in the center of town, um, in Johannesburg, which is the kind of cultural and um, commercial center of the country. And we've tried to find a place that's really accessible, um, both geographically but also in terms of transport and also in terms of cost. We've kept the costs very, very low. Um, the cost of an event is 15 rand, one five. So it just means that it makes it more accessible for more people. Um, and we hope you don't, there's no way you can control or, or design a crowd. Um, but we hope that, that through these ways, we, we're hoping to attract a different kind of crowd and a, and a range of people. Yes, and I, I suppose, yeah, well, uh, there's lots of issues around that, and I'm quite sure that the, all, the, all of those things have been through your mind. But one of the things that is coming up loud and clear, Vern Harris, this is where you come in as a research and archive director at the Nelson Mandela Foundation. There's going to be a whole panel discussion about Madiba's legacy. From what viewpoint? I mean, like, there's a wonderful quote that he said that uh, he informed himself by reading literature. I think that's roughly the quote. What, what are you looking to talk about and with whom? Nancy, we're responding to a growing discourse in South Africa today, especially among young people, which is far more critical of Madiba and his legacy. Uh, we hear younger people saying that Madiba sold out, that he didn't address effectively the challenges of, of poverty and inequality and so on. So we thought it would be a good idea to convene a dialogue with some of these younger voices engaging with uh, some of us older folk. Okay, so to, to hear what people have to say, I mean, is, is this to do with books? Are we looking at, at him from a sort of a literary point of view or simply his output? Well, there is a link. Simply is the right word. There is a link, of, of mm. course. Um, books about Madiba... Um, constitute an industry mm. but what is um, notable about that industry is that there are very few books available that offer real critical analysis and most of the books are celebratory um, repeating the same old narrative of his life and uh, we're hoping to encourage uh, authors to move into this space um, and uh, by creating dialogue uh, initially, uh, hopefully it will impact in the publishing world. So that's books about Madiba, but what about books and Madiba? Because he did do, a bit, the quote is, I equip myself by reading literature. It's well known that he read a huge amount when he was in, on Robben Island. Yeah, we have uh, quite a few photographs of his uh, various cells, and you'll see always uh, shelves with many books. Uh, voracious reader um, even right towards the end of his life and of course fundamental every day he had to read five newspapers what, what, are you, what sort of questions are you going to be uh, putting to the panel? I think your panelists include Mondri Makanya yourself, uh, Professor Njabulo Ndebele is going to be the respondent what are you looking at, at asking? I mean, you personally what questions are you going to ask? Well, I w would like to um, critique this uh, accepted notion of legacy, this, this sense that a legacy is received and has to be preserved. I don't think any legacy is received. It was made and remade. And ultimately, the legacy of Nelson Mandela has to be about the future that all of us are making. So I'd like to pose that as a challenge, uh, especially to the two younger people, Malaika Wazania and Chikana, because both of them have been very vocal in, in public discourses mm. about this. Legacy is, uh, you know, it's not always something that people think about when they're busy living a life. They're not necessarily thinking about their legacy, though increasingly people are beginning to focus on that. I mean, interesting that people have been critical of Madiba. There was only so much that he could do, given that he only had one lifetime. Yeah, I think um, this is another... Uh, line of inquiry I'd like to, to introduce to the discussion because a lot of the discourse, uh, critical discourse assumes that Madiba was all about reconciliation and that it was about forgive and forget but actually he put in place 
while he was president of the country, a whole range of long-term special instruments for redress and reparation, you know, from land restitution to black economic empowerment. And the question becomes, the fact that these haven't worked well, does that have to do with their original conceptualization or does it have primarily to do with failures of implementation by his successors? You talk about hoping that this panel debate will encourage young writers to, to move into the critical space. But uh, the question for you as well, is part of the idea of the book fair is, is to get people not just reading but writing as well? I mean, are you actively encouraging? I mean, for instance, the, the uh, Madiba Legacy panel discussion, will that be recorded? Will it be transcribed? No? Yes, yes, we, we will be recording it and then hopefully disseminating it as widely as possible using our platforms. I think another thing worth noting, Nancy, and uh, one of the reasons uh, Prof. Njibulo Ndebele is on the panel is that he's one of the few black South Africans who's written about Madiba. Um, this space is dominated by white South Africans and foreigners, actually. Mm. Yes, well, it goes back to what we were saying earlier about transformation being sort of long overdue. But, but yeah, just in closing, coming back to you, the, uh, is the purpose, uh, you know, one of the side purposes of the book fair is to encourage more writing? Most certainly, and I think that one of the inspiring things about a book fair is that you get to rub shoulders with writers um, of all shades and, and levels. And I think that that can be really inspiring. And we've got formal workshops and things like that as well, but there's nothing like meeting a mentor, somebody who you've loved his or her writing, and, and, and actually meeting that person and seeing words leap off a page. A hundred events over, goodness me, how many days? It's four, Three four, days. Three days, <laughs> yes, gosh. Yes. You, you say it's been quite a ride. What's been the best, what's been the worst? And you haven't even started. <laughs> Well, we haven't even started. I, I think the best is when you pair an author, perhaps a newer author, with somebody like Lauren Bukert, for example, who is an international star, um, and the author just cannot stop thanking you. And she is just so delighted to be put in the same room and on the same panel with someone who has become her hero. And that, for me, was an enormous highlight. I think that, that um, the nature of book fairs and, as you say, the debate around book fairs and what they need to do and, and the tone that they should take, that has probably been the most challenging this year. And I hope that we've addressed it. You know, it's part of a dialogue. I hope that it starts a conversation, if nothing else. Yeah. One of the challenges with events like this is that the hugely popular ones get filled up quick, quick. Uh, is, it, is, what, is that what's happening with you? It is, it is. But, um, yeah, just get in there fast. There are still tickets to be had, but they're going. So okay. it, it's, it's time to book. And it, it, do you have to book for the Madiga Legacy Panel, or, or is that...? Yes. Okay. Yes, you do. You do need to book for that panel as well, and I suspect you don't have much time. Okay. Then, just lastly, www.southafricanbookfair.co.za, if you want the whole program and if you want to book, do it now. And the Madiba Legacy Panel is happening on the 1st, I think, of August. Is that right? Correct, yeah. It's on Saturday at 3 p.m. Okay, so if you want to get along to that, make sure you book this instant, southafricanbookfair.co.za. Badger Brooker, thank you very much. Relax, get your vitamins inside you. Ben Harris, thank you very much for joining us, Director of, uh, of Research and Archive at the Nelson Mandela Foundation. It's just after 2 o'clock. It's SAFM Literature, but it's right now time for the news with Anne Musa.